This week on Writers Inc. I've got many one-star Amazon reviews, but this one was particularly irksome in that uh, it was, you know, oh, Jim, you know, I was really enjoying your novel, but I got to this point of the story and it just, it was so outlandish, you know, it threw me out of the story. I just, you know, just so implausible. Uh, I couldn't continue. Now I'm as I'm reading this and I'm thinking, well, that part that he has a problem with, they mentioned what part he had with the book, was true. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. I think we, I think we got to start with, J.D.'s got a book coming out. I mean, come on. How can we not start there? Yeah, this was a fun one. So it's another one with, with Patterson. Um, he's The way his brain works, I, I, I've given up trying to figure it out. But he, he called me in the middle of the Me Too movement, like when that was at the height. And he's like, you know what? I think I want to write a book about a succubus. <laughs> So, you know, if you're not sure what a succubus is, hop on Google real quick and, and, and look that up. But you're you're going to find that it, you know, it, it may not be the best time to talk about such a such a thing. But, you know, I figured out I'm game. I, I can do that. And we, we actually came up with a really cool idea for, for a book. I, I, I like this one a lot. So I don't want to go into too much of the, the detail on it. But it, yeah, it releases on Monday. It's called uh, Death of the Black Widow. Can you give us like the the little teaser or anything? I mean, set it up at all? Yeah, it basically it starts off with a um, a a police uh, rookie um, in Detroit and he, he goes out on his very first call with his, his partner and it's um, a domestic violence call in a, a rundown part of town um, in an apartment upstairs. He goes in there and they, they find a girl um, who was previously handcuffed to the sink, somehow managed to get herself loose and a dead guy sitting in the, in the bedroom. She obviously killed him. Um, but it, it sort of sparks this thing like this girl with, you know, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but this happens in the very beginning. Um, he's transporting her and she escapes from his, his car and, and kind of vanishes out of his life. Um, but he later learns that she was, you know, not exactly what he originally thought she was. And she keeps recurring in his life as he gets older. So that the book itself goes, spans 20, 30 years, um, basically goes from the beginning of his police career to the end. Um, and she becomes this obsession with him that you know, just constantly reappears in his life every couple of years, um, being tied to more and more murders so it's just a you know the way patterson's brain works like i said i just i, I give it i gave up trying to, to figure it out but he, he comes up with some some crazy ideas that are fun to write can you can you write so, anything that doesn't span 50 or 60 years or <laughs> i was thinking yeah, the same well, I mean, thing no a lot of my books fourth monkey i mean like each of the ones in that series they probably they're maybe two or three days total um, I've got one that I, I need to release at some point. I, I wrote it a long time ago, and it's just on my hard drive. But it all takes place in the last minute of the, the planet. Um, so it basically jumps jumps around the, the whole planet in the very last minute that civilization exists. Um, and, and that one was fun to write, too. But it just leans very heavy on sci-fi, um, which I'm a fan of. But, you know, right now the, the bucks are coming in from thrillers and, and scary stuff. So I, I'd have to rewrite it and get it to fit you know, one of those molds or, or decide to branch out into sci-fi and I've got enough plates in the air right now. So I just been, I've been leaving that one sitting there. I mean, in Speaking all seriousness, of, um, I, I want to ask you one more question about it. If you don't mind sure. being our guest for this week, I think I'd just ask you more questions. <laughs> uh, Bring it on. Like you, you seem to, you seem to really like to sort of dig into these conceptual ideas around time. Is, is that, is, is that something that, you've always done or is that sort of a, a story archetype that you you enjoy reading as well you know it honestly it depends on the story like with this one because it spans you know such a, a big amount of time it was fun for me to to you know visit a character and then vanish for 10 or 20 years and come back to that person and have to change the character to basically you know uh, uh, you know, cover those those 20 or 30 years and I, I without having to do like a complete recap because that would bore the crap out of me if I had to read it so somehow you have to you know disappear from a character in 1984 reappear in, in 1999 and and show the evolution in, in that particular person you know so now they're at a di different station in life they're making you know different amount, amounts of money they might be in a relationship they might not be um, all these different things have changed so that, you know that, that was the fun dynamic of, of that one um, with the other book that I mentioned I just wanted to see if I could do something like that you know can I write a book you know and keep it interesting and have the entire book take place within the same minute 
Um, I, I like to think that I did, but you know, at, at this point, you know, only the people over at Apple, you know, have probably read it. You know, so I'm sure Steve Jobs and friends they probably up- upload everything that we put on our Macs, and <laughs> somebody combs through all that material in some crazy Big Brother kind of way. Um, but yeah, one of these days that'll come out. Um, speaking of sci-fi stuff, I don't know if you guys saw this, but McDonald's actually put out a patent um, for their their brand and products in the metaverse. Have you seen that? <laughs> no. Yeah, so a, a bunch of companies have, have done that. They basically, you know, because they've got a registered trademark. So somebody like Burger King might come out and say, okay, well, Burger King is, you know, a, a, an existing trademark and, and they have to update their paperwork to basically include the metaverse. Um, but McDonald's actually took it a step further. Not only did they include the trademark of their name, but all of their products, their business model, the way that they sell, the way that they deal with the public. Um, so essentially, they, they trademarked everything related to creating a, a virtual McDonald's within the metaverse. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if that kind of thing is going to happen anytime soon, but the impression that I got out of it is while you're in the metaverse, you can basically order McDonald's and have it delivered to you in, in real life through <laughs> you know, one, of, one of those services, um, which, you know, like when you think about it, like, you know, right now we pick up the phone to order a pizza or we hop on an app, you know, so why not walk into a virtual Domino's and, you know, order it at a virtual counter if you're already, you know, got the headset strapped to your, your face. Um, so I don't know. I, I just thought that was that was really cool. Um, and you know, it's the first one that I've, I've actually seen, um, what's going on with you guys? Uh, well, I guess as this comes out, I had a book come out Friday, so it's probably not as cool as the one you described, (laughs) but, um, it's out the sixth book of my dead South series came out. So we're going to pretend like it's doing awesome, even though it actually comes out tomorrow in our real time that we're in now. Um, and then, uh, also last Saturday, AKA two days from where we're recording, I have a book bub, so that'll be interesting. I'll have to come back and report on that as well. So that's for book one in that series. Um, and, uh, other than that, I'm actually, uh, I'm going out of town almost as soon as we record this. So I've kind of given myself a little bit of break this week. I've been working a little bit, but mostly, uh, just trying to do some stuff around the house and all that. I did finish a really good, it's funny you are mentioning, um, you know, writing over like a long time span and also writing in just one minute. Um, I'll give a shout out to a previous guest and buddy of all of ours, Paul Tremblay. I just finished reading The Cabin at the End of the World. And I was so impressed how that book all took place in just that cabin, like the whole time. And I was just like, that's so hard to do to have one set, like one small setting in a book like that. And uh, that, that book really kind of blew me away. So he sent me an ARC of that. I mean, it's been out for, for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, it's a little it, older book now. Yeah. Yeah, And I, I remember I hit the ending and, you know, cause I was, I, you know, as, as I'm going through it as a reader and then also as a writer, you know, like, how is he going to wrap this up? Cause I, I know Paul probably will wrap it up. Um, but the ending that he came up with was kind of ambiguous. It and, was totally, you know, it surprised me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you go through the reviews, you can kind of see that, you know, some people really appreciate that and, and other ones absolutely do not. <laughs> um, but the, but the book, um, it did, I believe won the, the Bram Stoker award for the year that it came out. So, um, it did good, but it, it definitely gets you thinking. I mean, because, you know, without any spoilers, like, you know, you don't, you don't know whether it's true or not true. You know what these people are presenting, yeah. like, it, you know, through the entire book, you're trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong. And you, you really don't know. And it just, it leaves you wondering that, um, it, which was very cool. I mean, anytime you close a book, and even if the ending is ambiguous like that, if, if you close the cover and you're still thinking about it a day or a week later, you know, for me, that's a win. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really good. So, and I had a short DM exchange with him and I told him that you were talking crap about him off the air on our podcast. So, uh, and then he needs to mess with you. So, you know, he's, spoiler. he's, a, he's a scary dude and he's way taller than me. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's what's, that's what's going on with me. So what about you, Jay? Yeah, I've been, uh, chewing on some things, uh, some projects that, you know, can't, can't really talk about i don't have a book coming out this week although Fake booking although i do have a book uh uploaded and uh probably going to schedule it's going to be the new uh the next three-story method book that'll probably come out towards the end of the month beginning of next month um but that one's almost ready um also want to just remind folks we got the author life summit uh tickets still available at the authorlife.com slash summit 2022 and uh something i'm watching that um I'm just, I just got totally hooked. Uh, on It's on HBO. I had to get HBO for a month because Zach told me to watch Winning Time, which is good. And uh, so I was, I was skimming through HBO to see what, what else was on um, in the meantime. And Tokyo Vice, have you guys heard of this yet? No. It's, uh, it's set in Tokyo in 1999, and it's like this sort of 
crime journal noir thriller um, involving like the Japanese mafia and like this American expat who's in Tokyo and he gets a job with the uh, the biggest newspaper in Japan and it's aesthetically it's really well done it's like it's like a slow burn detective mystery kind of thing and I'm just really into it it's it's beautiful beautifully shot so just thought I'd mention that that's cool have either of you guys seen um, Book of Boba Fett on Disney Mm-mm. If you're watching any of the, the Star Wars stuff, um, they they've been doing in, in Mandalorian and and in this one they brought Luke back, um, but the thing is they brought him back as if he's 28 years old, yeah. and and you know, like in Mandalorian it was good, but you know the character was moving very fast because it's more or less a fight scene, so you know it's very quick blurry type shots and stuff. So you know from my standpoint, and I've never done this kind of production, so I've got no clue how it actually works, but it seemed like it would be pretty easy to fake or on the easier side just because you never really get a good look at them. Um, but in Book of uh, Boba Fett, they actually have full-on, like, you know, FaceTime with them. I mean, it's like he's he's looking at the camera, he's talking, you know, conversations happening back and forth, and it does not look like CGI. It is some very freaky, scary stuff. The fact that they can, I mean, it, it look, it's completely believable, which is, is frightening because most of the time CGI, there's just something off about it. You know, even if you can't quite pinpoint it, it just it doesn't feel right. Like your brain can tell that you're you're, you're being faked out. But with this one, like I, I could not tell. So you're saying this um, Mark Hamill was the, was the actor. Yeah, but the thing is, he's 28 uh, in Book of Boba Fett. He's in real life. He's in his 70s. Yeah. Um, but they, they somehow aged down his face, um, his, his entire body, you know, I'm guessing they used a stand, you know, stand in or I something. I think it's a different actor. Yeah. yeah. And, and then they probably put his face on top on that actor. Um, uh, but they also, you know, de- took the age out of his voice. You know, they brought his age back to 28 years huh. old because, you know, obviously our voices change too. And, um, you know, it, it looks and sounds exactly like him. So even if you're not a, a fan of um, Star Wars, you may want to just check that out just from a CGI standpoint. It's, it's impressive. Nice. Nice. Well, cool. Let's take care of some business, and then we'll get to our guest for the week. We want to uh, tell everyone about how wonderful Kobo Writing Life is. Uh, if you are going to publish a book and you're not going to be exclusive to Amazon, you've got to go to Kobo Writing Life. They run all kinds of monthly promotional opportunities. You can set your price across all these different countries and territories, and you don't have to sign any exclusivity agreements. So if you're interested, head on over to KoboWritingLife.com or use the link in the show notes and uh, sign up today. All right, J.D., who is on the dock? This week we've got James Rollins coming back for his, his second appearance. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author. He sold more than 20 million books. Um, still a licensed veterinarian. I hope you ask him about that. Um, his latest novel is called Kingdom of Bones, which is number 16 in his Sigma Force series, You know, which is impressive all by itself. And it releases on uh, Tuesday, April 19th. Here he is, James Rollins. Mfopa Alfame. How'd I do on that? Was I close? <laughs> I believe so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> My Swahili is a little rusty, or I guess I should not even Swahili. It's, uh, it's uh, a dialect of Swahili. But, um, okay. But yes, you sound, you sound perfect. Thank you. <laughs> no, thanks. Well, you know, that's the internet. That's, I, had to, I had to practice that a few times to get it right. But uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, if you're wondering, I don't, um, I do like to ask, you know, all of our guests questions in Swahili. That's kind of my thing. But uh, it also happens to be uh, the translation of your new book, Kingdom of Bones. Tell us about this. Well, this bo- book is like a big jungle adventure. Uh, it's a story of a, uh, of a virus, which, uh, you know, is not exactly the topic I thought I wanted to write about. Um, when I pitched this story in Oh, late 2019, you know, I told my editor, you know, I've got the story. I want to do a, a book about viruses and, and, uh, you know, I don't really want to do a pandemic novel because I had done already a pandemic novel in the past, uh, the sixth extinction, the seventh plague, sort of a pandemic esque type novel. I wanted to more explore the weird biology of viruses. And, uh, and so I, as a, you know, you know, gave her the, the elevator pitch for the story, you know, I'm going to have this weird virus that gets loose and it, it affects, uh, sort of turns humans into some catatonic, uh, cattle-like state. And while at the same time, it ramps up the environment into this very predatory, uh, more malicious, more venomous state so that we become easy prey for nature in general. And so she said, you know, great, you know, run with it. And then, you know, months go by and COVID comes up and I get a call from my editor says, you know, did you, uh, 
Did any of those virologists you were talking to when you're researching the novel, did they warn you about what was going to happen? How come you're writing about viruses just as a plague is beginning? And I go, I don't, this is not good timing. I don't think anybody's going to want to necessarily read about viruses amidst a plague. Uh, so, you know, hopefully, if nothing else, this, uh, this book's going to shine a light uh, a bit more on about the weird biology of viruses, about, uh, you know, shine a little bit of light onto our own current pandemic while at the same time sort of exploring, you know, uh, how viruses could be good for us. But anyways, that's a, it's a big jungle adventure where nature turns against mankind. Sigma's called in to, you know, search for the clues that are buried in the lost kingdom deep in the, the, you know, the, uh, the heart of Africa. And they have to find this lost kingdom and try to find a clue to how to combat this, this, new, uh, this new threat. Yes, it is. Uh, it's a fantastic read. It's a it's a classic James Rollins uh, Sigma Force book. Thoroughly enjoyed it, and I and I kept thinking like I, I was walking around outside looking for ants. I was getting you had me all paranoid <laughs> about ants. Now, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about ants and maybe uh, the, the this is like a big virus too? Maybe you talk a little bit about that. What that may, means. Well, again, I, I I've always been fascinated by ants. Uh, you know, this is sort of the the you know, how amazing they are. I mean, I when I was doing the research and I thought, well, I'm going to, I need to start small. You know, I, need, I don't, can't jump with, you know, a big tiger attacking somebody that, that's then been changed. I wanted to start at a very small level and, and you know, layer in the change in the, uh, in mother nature. And so, you know, I started with the smallest thing I could think of, you know, it's ants. And then I started doing research on ants. I found how fascinating they are that ants actually have a, their own emotional state, which I didn't, wasn't aware of. They, they have their own emotional world, which you would never imagine from ants, uh, and learned all about the uh, uh, sort of the, their own uh, sort of weird biology besides the viruses, and uh, so it was a great deal of fun dealing with that and exploring the natural world. And you know, me being a former veterinarian, it was great, you know, being able to play in the whole, you know, biological uh, framework of uh, twisting and changing animals to my own tastes to make them more venomous or more dangerous. That was a great deal of fun. Um, and the virus in this case is is a, a virus. Uh, as a giant virus, these are viruses that were just relatively recently discovered. They they were actually misclassified as a bacterium because they were so large. They're generally like a 10, 20, 100 times larger than the typical virus. They, these viruses, um, you know, the typical genome for like a flu virus is, is generally like six genes. Uh, HIV has four genes. Rabies, I think is, I uh, call seven genes. Whereas these omniviruses have, you know, 2,500 genes. So they're much more complex beings, but at the same time, they're still by definition a virus, the way they act, the way they function. But what's strange about these big viruses is that uh, most of the genes that are found in these giant viruses, which like I said, like are relatively recently discovered are um, unknown. Uh, there's one virus called the Yarrow virus where literally the entire genome has never been seen before. So me as a thriller writer, I'm thinking, you know, what a great genetic toolbox I can play with to, you know, create my own super virus that's going to create all the sort of a wreak havoc across the biosphere. Is it the uh, Tiende Cubicium? Uh, is that, is that the, the name of the virus? I get that right? Exactly. Very good. <laughs> the, 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 uh, Whenever we do an audio version of the book, I, I get a long list of uh, questions about how to pronounce things. And so, you know, they asked me to record how I think they should be pronounced, which is a, uh, which is not good. You know, it's just <laughs> like, however you, however you want to pronounce is probably correct, but I will give an attempt at, at pronouncing these words. Nice. Well, what does your, uh, what did your 90 days of research look like during a pandemic? Well, uh, I usually front load my research. So I did a lot of my research before I even presented my idea to my publisher. So um, I'd already, by the end of 2019, I had what I thought was my 90 days of research completed. But when you're writing a pandemic, no I'm writing a novel about viruses during a pandemic, um, everything began to change. You know, I, I, all of a sudden I couldn't not have a world without COVID being a specter. So, you know, that had to be incorporated into the story. Uh, the way the world dynamics was changed in regards to terrorism uh, and the way uh, government agencies were acting had to change was because Sigma Force is sort of an anti-terrorist government organization. They're going to be affected by the after effects of, of, of this plague. And uh, so, and also just the, the, the common knowledge of 
of, of people about viruses has, has, has amped up. People you know, know what, you know, the, how vaccines work and, and how you know, the base, some of the fundamentals of, of virology. So I couldn't skate away with, you know, glossing over some of this. I had to do a deeper dive. So I found out that I had to keep tweaking the story uh, during the course of writing it because things kept changing. Uh, so that was a, a bit of a challenge to, to, to make the story feel of the moment. You know, I want my novels to feel as though uh, they're not already, you know, feeling old or past the curve. I want to make sure that they feel like they're as timely as though I had written it yesterday. And I, I love uh, how much time and effort you put into the author's note to readers. I, I, have a, I have a feeling that a lot of writers just say, well, hey, it's fiction. You just have to sus suspend your disbelief and, and here's the story. But you, you take a very proactive approach and you kind of, you, you hit a lot of the elements of the storytelling and you kind of give the reader some insight uh, in, into your world. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how you, how you develop that and, and why, that, why you put that in your books? Um, and they are oftentimes the, the favorite part of my book that people look forward to getting to the, <laughs> the end of the story to find out what was real and what was not. Uh, and if you look at my early standalone stuff, um, I didn't, I didn't have, you won't, you're not going to find that section in my books. It was only, um, you know, sort of in the, in the midst of working on the Sigma books that this became a part of the, of each book. And it came about for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one is, uh, you know, I, I want to sort of, uh, offer breadcrumbs for readers that might have any interest in the topics that I'm raising uh, that they can follow if they want to you know, read more depth about a certain subject matter. Um, but also it was because I had a, a one-star Amazon review. Um, I've got many one-star Amazon reviews, but this one was particularly irksome in that uh, it was, you know, oh, Jim, you know, I was really enjoying your novel, but I got to this point of the story and it just, it was so outlandish, you know, it threw me out of the story. I just, you know, just so implausible. Uh, I couldn't continue. Now I'm as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, that part that he has a problem with, they mentioned what part he had with the book, was true. It was, you know, it was, you know, truth is stranger than fiction is what he thought was totally implausible and unrealistic, was a fact behind it. They were actually, you know, that wasn't making that up. That was real. But you know, I can't, you know, reach to my computer screen and 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 grab that person by the shoulder and say, no, no, that's read. Keep reading on. You'll find out that's real. So to, you know, basically to to help people realize that there's a lot of fact. There's a basic, even though I'm going to take you somewhere pretty wild by then I'm done with the story. Uh, a lot of it's rooted in, in, in real science, real history, but it sometimes seems so fantastical that people won't believe it. So I want to sort of uh, lay the foundation so you understand that there's a, a, a large foundation of, of facts behind this crazy outlandish story. But also it helps me not have to answer a thousand uh, emails asking the same question. Was this real? Is that real? Where do you get this information? So I thought I'm just going to put it back there, save me a lot of time afterwards. So it sounds like that one star review really helped you out. It did. It gave me some, it gave me the impetus to, uh, to, to create that section. And then it's, it's, it's been, you know, wildly popular. People do like that section of the book. Do you routinely look at your reviews? Uh, I mean, not routinely. I mean, it's just I me. Mean, I think any author, you know, if you're, you're checking your Amazon ranking, which most, most authors do uh, to the point of uh, obsession, uh, you just sort of keep track of, you know, trying to get a, some handle because you basically when your book's out, you don't know what your book's doing out there and you're not getting any, any feedback from, you know, you're not getting a daily accounting of, of how your book's doing. So you're curious, you're going to look. And then of course you're going to, if you're on Amazon, you're going to occasionally go, what's why one star? And so then you have to look at it. So do you have a sort of a litmus test that where you say, okay, that's a one star review and there's something in there I can use to improve versus that's a review for a coffee pot and mine's. Oh, no, I, 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 that, that's one thing that's great about social media besides the start, the one star review is that uh, I like um, getting that feedback because I, you know, back once upon a time when I first started, my first novel was published in 1997. Uh, so back then, you know, it was rare for an author to have a website. I was technologically savvy because I had a website. Uh, you know, and then as social media came out, this is intriguing, this whole Facebook thing, you know, this could be fun to play with. And I remember contacting, again, my same, I got the same editor I've had since, but this is my very first book. My entire career has been with the same editor, which is pretty amazing in this industry. And, uh, so I contacted Alyssa and said, listen, you know, listen, I'm really curious about uh, this Facebook thing. You know, I think this might be a good way for me to, you know, promote my novels and, you know, have some interaction. And, you know, she said, well, let me check into it. And the, the feedback from the publishing world was, 
that's a flash in the pan. Don't bother with it. You're going to waste your time, you know, but I didn't believe them. So I just, I got on Facebook and I was sort of early adopter and, and on social media, but I like that interaction because before, you know, you didn't get any feedback. You're, you, you're, you weren't really getting, you might get the occasional letter from a, from a, uh, from a reader or occasional email, but, uh, that interaction you get from social media really helps me sort of sometimes go, you know, what's working, what's not in my novel, you know, what's, what's, what's ringing, what's, getting people excited about the stories. And so that helps a lot. You know, even for when I wrote the first the book in my fantasy series, Starless Crown, you know, in this, I'm you know, branching into, you know, I'm a little bit off the path from my usual, you know, staccato paced thrillers. I'm doing sort of a world building fantasy novel. And I was curious, you know, what's working, what's not. So, you know, I've, I've looked at reviews and I've heard feedback from social media. So now I'm working on the second novel. I am incorporating some of the things that I've, I've, I've heard from people, you know, what was working, what wasn't. And so I am tailoring a bit of the second novel to, uh, to match that. So that there's definitely some uh, input you get from, from both social media, you can commentary from social media and getting comments from, from reviews. I mean, I, I think any author, if they're, if they're worth their while, is going to listen to that. I mean, they're going to, you know, you need a sounding board in which to get some idea of what's working, what's not in your in your stories. Was this fantasy book the one you were recently touring on? Yes, I just finished a, a tour in January, um, which was interesting because I hadn't toured in two years. So everything was rusty. You know, I didn't know how to pack. I didn't know how, you know, I usually have my, my, my spiel down about how to do my talk. And this, you know, I felt, you know, I was muttering and stammering and, you know, it just didn't feel felt, you know, I had to get back into the group a little bit. And even the bookstores were, were in a similar sort of state in that I was in probably about three quarters of the stores I was speaking at. I was their first author live event. Um, they were like, you know, we don't remember how to do this. You know, where do we set up our chairs? And, you know, is anybody going to show up? Have we trained them to not even show up to these things? But luckily uh, it was, uh, everything was well, well attended. And it was a, it was a great deal of, of fun. Basically to get out there. Cause again, besides this, the interaction you get with social media, there's nothing you know better than just uh, to have the interaction with an audience where you get an idea of how, what they're feeling about the novel, what, what their questions are asking, give me some insight on what they're looking for. So again, there's some in, in, interaction that's helpful for me from a, book, from a book tour standpoint. Did you, when you were out there touring, did you see any sort of long-term impact that the pandemic might've had on the book tours uh, beyond just sort of the masking and the distancing, but were there any other things that you noticed that were different than they were from before? Um, mostly just the COVID uh, distancing things. Each store had their own policy. So sometimes you had to adjust. Sometimes they wanted you to wear a mask. Other times you didn't. Sometimes, uh, you know, they would ask you, you know, what level are you okay with contact? You know, is you okay with handshakes? Are you okay with pictures? Whereas before that really wasn't, it was more just, you know, a wild, wild west out there. You just do whatever happy you want to do. So it, you know, felt a little bit confining, but I can't say that the, the, the crowds were just as enthusiastic. Um, I did an event at uh, uh, the St. Louis Library, and it's always a well-attended event. And, and I had heard that they were doing a COVID restriction. They, weren't, they, were, they were maxing out the number of people that are allowed in that room. And I, I believe it was they were allowing 75 people. Well, when I got there, except all seats were taken, and there were like a line of like 30 people out in the, in the hallway that weren't, weren't being allowed in. So... You know, I asked, can we break protocol and just have them, these people come in? So we did, but it was just weird that, you know, you had to, you know, sort of break some rules to allow people into to these events, but you know, it, was, it was different. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you've made it work. Yeah. 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 You, you just improvise. <laughs> right. Right. Well, this is uh, Kingdom of Bones is book 16 in Sigma Force, I believe. Uh, it is. Yep. Yeah, that is an incredible accomplishment in an, in of a, of itself. Not to mention the commercial success. What's it like? What are the pros and cons in writing in a in a long series like this? Well, I didn't want to write a series, which might seem weird to say. Um, in that, you look at all my first books; they're all standalone adventures. You know, I wanted each story to be unique in of itself. I had some. Um, some issues with uh, series, and it was it's what I call the Jessica Fletcher syndrome. I don't know if I mentioned that before when we've talked before. Um, Jessica Fletcher syndrome is from Murder She Wrote. And here was this old woman in Cabot Cove that was always stumbling over dead bodies, 
And I've never, never ever stumbled over a dead body. So I'm wondering, <laughs> what is her problem that, you know, every week she's stumbling over a dead body, you know, that, that strains your, your sense of, uh, of disbelief. You know, personally, I thought the only resolution to Murder, She Wrote should have been the revelation in the final episode that Jessica Fletcher was a serial killer <laughs> and that she's murdering all these people and framing them all along. Then it would make sense why she's stumbling over dead bodies all this time. But also it's hard to maintain Jeopardy with a serious character because if somebody puts a gun against Jessica Fletcher's head in this episode, you know that trigger's never going to be pulled because she's going to be in next week's episode. So it's hard to maintain a level of jeopardy in that regard. So I, did, I don't know, I just had a problem with that whole area. And then I wrote my, what I thought was gonna be a standalone sandstorm and Sigma Force is introduced in that, in that book, uh, but they're not the main characters. They're sort of su support staff for the main group of characters. So a painter crows out in the field for the first time. He's not even the director of Sigma yet. And when I was writing that story, first, I liked the idea, the concept of Sigma Force, these you know, special forces soldiers that have been retrained in scientific disciplines to protect the world. Um, and then I realized, hey, you know, I've been getting a lot of pressure from my house to do a series because they, again, from a commercial standpoint, it's easier for them to sell a series. So I was going to do a series, do a series, do a series. I don't want to do a series. Um, so when I got this idea for Sigma Force, I said, hey, I could base a series on a group of characters rather than an individual. Therefore, the jeopardy can come from many different directions. It's not just one person always getting into trouble. And also, I can maintain jeopardy because it's a group. Anybody, no one necessarily is safe in Sigma Force universe because you know anybody can be killed and quickly somebody else could be recruited and take their place because it's a group. And those that have followed through the 16 books know I've done some very brutal things to members of Sigma Force. Um, so I, that allows me to maintain a level of jeopardy. So uh, that got me around the Jessica Fletcher syndrome. So then I felt comfortable enough to write a series. And then what I discovered over the course of writing a series is the positive side of writing a series is I can create the, you know, a much broader arc of these characters' lives than it could accomplish in a single book. You know, in the course of the series, the, you know, the very first book, Map of Bones, uh, Gray meets Seishan for the first time and, sh you know, they shoot each other. Uh, you know, now at 16 books later, they're married and have a kid. It's hard to pull off that arc <laughs> over one book. So you take 16 books for them to <laughs> go from shooting each other to having a, having a child together and raising them together. Uh, so it's, it's fun to see you know, how the characters change, to see how their life changes, how it impacts their professional lives and how their personal lives. Because, uh, you know, we all have, or we're all balancing professional and personal lives. So I like you know, to be able to, to juggle that a little bit, to see people's personal lives impact how they're dealing with the, these global world threatening, you know, dangers I create in my novels. Uh, so uh, that was the, the positive about the, the series is that you get to explore these characters' lives in a much broader canvas than you possibly could in one book. If it wouldn't, weren't for my wife, I would forget my nieces and nephews' birthdays all the time. How do you keep track of all of your characters through 16 books? It's incredible. Uh, it's, you know, I, I can't say I occasionally make mistakes. Um, I think I remember thinking after writing 16 books, you know, I, the main characters, you know, I sort of know fairly well. I don't, I don't need the Bible to remember who they are necessarily. Some of the characters that I maybe bring from a, a novel way in the past and I'm bringing forward again into a current novel. And then I have to go back and look at my Bibles for those characters a little bit. Um, so yeah, there's a little bit of I have a Bible created for the series that allows me to, to go backtrack and, and look at things. Um, but sometimes I think I remember something that I've got it wrong. Um, I hope this isn't, isn't a spoiler because it happens in the first book, but uh, one of the characters, Monk, loses a hand in his first, in the very first Map of Bones book. And um, in one book, I switched which hand was cut off. So that was embarrassing. So, wait a second, this was the other hand that cut off. So, oops. Yeah, that, I thought that, that was hand, but it's not. Yep, that, that's going to happen from time to time. Uh, this is probably not a fair question, but uh, do you have an end game for Sigma Force? Do you do you feel like you could just keep writing it, or do you feel like there it might come down to a point and a finish point? Well, I do sort of have in the back of my arc for all the major characters. I know where everybody's sort of going to land down the line. I don't know exactly when they're going to land on those points. Um, I don't have necessarily saying that you know like. Uh, was Sue Grafton who did the you know, A is for alibi, B is for did the alphabet one? So you know that when you get to Z, it was going to be the end of the series. I don't have, I'm not that concrete with my series. Okay. 
Um, and again, with again, based on the fact that it's a group, you know, the main character, Gray, may have a, a, a shocking demise. You never know um, because they can always recruit a new buck that's going to, you know, carry the Sigma Force you know, banner forward. So, you know, as long as people want to read them, I'm, I'll probably gonna keep writing them. I do enjoy playing that universe, you know, you know, dabbling with, you know, science and archaeology and history. You know, those are the things that I, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to play with it in just my, you know, even if I had stopped writing today, if I retired today, I'm still going to be spinning those stories. I'm still going to read my new scientist magazine. I'm going to see an article and go, oh, what if this happened? That what ifs are always going to be bouncing around in my head. And I found that unless I put them down on paper, uh, it's they, they, they bother me. They just, they just get louder and louder a voice in your head that I've got to do something with. And that's what happened with the fantasy novel is that I had this idea for this fantasy you know, based on a an article I read in New Scientist, by the way. It was about uh, these... Uh, tidally locked planets. There's certain planets uh, out in the universe that circle their sun the same way our moon circles our planet, where one side is forever facing, like the moon, the, oh, one side of the moon always faces one side, the dark side always faces away. So one side of these planets always faces the sun, one side is eternally in darkness. And then I got to thinking, you know, could life exist on such an extreme where you have one side, you know, frozen, one side blasted and, 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 and arid. And if talking to a uh, astrophysicist, yeah, you know, because of the the dynamics, the thermodynamics of that planet, there's going to be winds that are going to shift some of the heat to one side and cold to the other, and that there's going to be a temperate band between the two. And life theoretically could exist there. And I'm thinking, well, what kind of life would that be? And me being in background with evolutionary biology before I became a veterinarian, I'm starting playing, you know, well, how, what would life look like on that planet? And that began the sort of, then it, it snowballs and finished like, I, I got to do something with this. I can't not play in this world. It's so cool and fun. And I've created all weird creatures. So then that became you know, I had to write the fantasy novel because it was just too loud of a voice to ignore. Do you feel as though that fantasy series is now competing for your attention with uh, Sigma Force? Well, you know, you used to always, it's probably kept secret that early in my career, I was doing fantasies and thrillers every year. Uh, I, I wrote fantasies under a different pen name. Um, and I sort of stumbled backwards into that type of, uh, of situation. And that when I was trying to sell my first book, Subterranean, uh, it was rejected soundly. I had a 49 different rejections from, from agents. It was a 50th agent that saw something with subterranean that they thought they, thought they could sell. But after you get 49 different rejections, you know, it sinks in. You begin, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not a thriller writer. You know, no one seems to like this book. And, and one of the uh, editors was kind enough to send me like a personal note on the back of a form rejection letter. Use your form, your rejection letter. Dear sir, we hate your book. Don't send it to us again, editor. Uh, but sometimes some editor might, you know, give you a little, little pat on the back. They might send you a little personal note about some part of the book they liked or some encouragement. So this one editor sent me a note back, form rejection letter. On the back, he's written three words to, to help, you know, boost my confidence. This is unpublishable. Uh, so I thought, well, that was kind of him to, you know, not only reject me, but take the extra special effort to kick me in the nuts besides. So, you know, <laughs> appreciate that. so you know, I became sort of convinced, well, maybe I'm not a thriller writer. So during the, and it takes a while to get 49 different rejections. It's not like you just send out 49 and next week you get all the rejections. They're stages. You got to, you can be rejected at the query letter. You can be rejected at your partial level. You can be rejected at your novel level. And each thing takes an increasing span of time to wait them out. So it was a long time to get 49 different rejections. So I thought, well, I had this idea for a fantasy story. So I began working on that figure. Maybe I'm not a thriller writer, maybe I'm a fantasy writer. So I began working on this fantasy novel. I cut to the chase so I don't eat up the entire time frame. But basically what happened is that I ended up getting a, within one week, or unpublished to one week later, I had a, uh, within one, one week span, I had a uh, publisher for my for subterranean and a publisher offered me a three book deal for the fantasy with one week. So I went from nothing to all of a sudden having two publishers, two different genres. And uh, so for the first uh, decade of my career, I was doing a fantasy novel every year and a thriller every year. So uh, this is almost a return to my roots by doing this again, going back to, and people often ask, do you, do, do you mix it up? Do you write a little bit of fantasy one day and a little bit of the thriller the other day and then go back to the fantasy? No, I tried that once, one time. And it's like stripping gears in your head. Uh, for me, I get so immersed in the world. I'm living in the world. Even when I'm not writing, I'm thinking about that world. Uh, and it's got to fully occupy my, my mind. So I have to you know, totally write the fantasy, commit to that, finish that, then, then switch gears and go over to the, the thriller and write that and get immersed in that. 
uh, trying to go back and forth is just, that is just difficult. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't we bring our conversation full circle? You mentioned in, in 1997, uh, you were tapping the publisher on the shoulder and saying, hey, how about this Facebook thing? And they're, they kind of brushed it off. Is there anything right now that you're, you're saying to the publisher, hey, guys, you need to be looking at this? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, nothing I can think of. Um, I mean, the, the problem with social media is that there's a new, <clears throat> there's a new, you know, hot place to be. You know, whether it's you know when Instagram came out, then everybody switched from Facebook to Periscope, and then there's, you know, it's all these different thing iterations that come in, and, and I'll sample them. Some seem some are some fit me well, others don't. So I can't say anything that's spectacularly new. If you know anything, let me know because I'm always <laughs> looking for. It. That next new thing. Yeah, I was. Uh... You know, it's still an so, so You know, I have not found a good use for TikTok. <laughs> you know, I don't think me dancing and talking about my novel has really worked for me. So I haven't found a good way of using TikTok for social media. Well, JD is is getting savvy with that. He's uh, he's using TikTok to reach book uh, influencers. So oh, so maybe yeah. you should talk to him about that. Maybe he, he could there find are, you a little, are, little are, space. Yeah, there are some good book influencers out there. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, cool. Well, what, what's next for you? What, what are you working on these days? Uh, I'm just finishing up the second book of the fantasy series. Like I mentioned before, you can, in, you know, incorporating some of the input. That's why it's, I'm a little bit behind. Usually I have my book done before the, the current book comes out, but because this was a new genre, I wanted to sort of get some input before I jump right into the second book. So I'm a little bit late in getting that finished, but so I'm finishing that now. Uh, and then I've already got my research done for the next super novel. So I'll kick into that as soon as I'm done with that. James is amazing. Uh, Zach, let's start with you. Uh, thoughts on this one? Yeah, it was, it was really good. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what the overall interesting thing of this interview was for me is that no matter uh, like James Rollins is obviously top, top of the game, like household name. And, but like he's, he, I just thought it was really interesting how he talked about checking his Amazon reviews and his Amazon ranking and all, like all this stuff we hear as authors, no matter what level you're at, whether you're just starting out as an indie and all that. I, I don't know. Like that whole part of the conversation was just really, really interesting to me. And, um, you know, and, and obviously he, he, hearing him talk about like, yeah, you know, like I, I look at the rank to kind of figure out where my sales are because I'm not getting like live reporting and stuff, which is one thing as indies that we obviously do have as we can see what our sales are and stuff. But, and then him talking about go reading reviews and um, the one star thing was really, really funny that he talked about and how he's like, no, that thing is actually true that you're saying it's not, but it was, it was just funny hearing him talk about how like a one star view kind of like irritate him and stuff. I don't know that whole, that was all really interesting to me. It's like, it just makes those, these really successful authors just, you know, obviously we know they're human, but it just made them feel like even more so, you know what I'm saying? Yep. That, that flag went up in my head as soon as he started talking about it. I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to, I didn't have a question scripted to talk to him about reviews, but when he mentioned that one star review, I was like, Oh, uh, that's a really interesting thing. And, and I, I had the, I had the same reaction as you is like, yeah, you know, this is just what people do. And I love the fact that he, was looking at those reviews and found something useful out of it. And look what it turned into. It, it turned into his, his author note from an author that's become a staple in his series. So I, I thought it was fascinating too. I had to, I had to probe a little deeper on that. You know, I think it's one of, I, I don't understand the reasoning behind it, but I think a lot of people say they don't look at them, but then they actually go home and they look at them. Um, and I, I don't understand the point in saying that you don't. Um, but I, I know a lot of big name authors that, you know, are, are all over that stuff. I mean, the Amazon ranking, you know, you can, it updates every hour, you know, so you can see in real time how your, your book is doing and they're, they're watching that, you know, very closely for the same reason that he brought up. Like we don't actually see that transparency until we get our, you know, our royalty statements and, and, you know, accounting information, you know, sometimes three months later, six months later on a traditionally published book. So like, that's the only insight you get. Um, but in all honesty, like one star reviews, like that's where, you know, if you want to grow as a writer, those are the ones you need to be reading. You know, the, the four and five star, the glowing ones that are patting you on the back and telling you that you're the greatest writer ever. Like that's that's not going to help you. Um, but a good one star review that tears your book apart and, and actually has something constructive in there that you can use, uh, utilize like that. That's priceless. I mean, one of my beta readers gave me my first one star re review on Forsaken. 
Um, and when I saw that go up, you know, first I got completely horrified because it was like number seven out of all the reviews that I had gotten on that book. It had just come out. Um, but, you know, I started reading it and like, you know, she had paragraph after paragraph and like she was right. You know, she came up with a couple really cool points. So I, I reached out to her because at the time you could actually still get an email address for a reviewer. Um, they obviously got very smart and wiped that out. Um, but I reached out to her and I said, hey, listen, if you take your that review down, I'll let you read my next book in advance if you can give me that kind of feedback. Um, and she's been one of my beta reviewers ever, ever since. So, yeah, I definitely read those. Yeah, see, it's interesting to hear that because, like, my my whole thing has been I, I really don't look at mine. I look maybe once or twice a year. I'll kind of glance at them because, you know, it, it's interesting to me to hear what you just said and to hear James Rawl, like, the, these, like, positive stories that came out of them. Because for me, it's it's not that they bother me. Like, I don't it, – it is what it is. My whole thing, I've always gone back to what Brian McDonald says, which is, like – the only thing that matters when someone's reading your book is like when they get bored or when they put it down and everything else is just opinion. And like, once I heard him say that, I was kind of like, well, like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I guess you can learn stuff from one star reviews, but you're also like, if you see patterns, I guess, but like, I don't know. I think some people can get way too caught up on like one review, but it's good to hear. Like, you know, you, you got an awesome beta reader out of it, obviously, which is really, really cool. But I don't know, like, I, I that's something I really stay away from, I guess. I think it depends on, on when in your career you're looking at those. I think it there does, are times yeah. where, you know, you might not be prepared for what's there. And uh, and there are other times where you're, you're in a mindset where you can really learn from it. So I, I think I'm agreeing with all of you guys and saying that, like, there isn't sort of a blanket way to use reviews and that, um, you know, either never looking at them or looking at them every single day, like there might be sort of a healthy middle ground there. Yeah. And the other thing he brought up was the author's note. Um, I, I love writing author's notes because for me, it gives me the chance to kind of talk to my audience one on one. Um, and, you know, in, in my case, like I fill them in on what's going on in my, my life, um, you know, and, and those types of things. And I address some of the points that he brought up in the book, you know, like why I wrote the book, what, you know, why this is in there, why that's in there. Um, and I, as a reader, I like reading those, you know, because it, it makes me feel like I understand a lot of, you know, a little bit more about the author and, and you know, how that book came about. So I, I love those. I think it's cool that he's, he's out there writing them. Um, he brought up book tours are back. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, you guys don't really do a whole lot of book tours, but like I'm, I'm starting to see that, too. I, I, I just did a, a, a local festival uh, about a week ago. Um, my publisher sending me off to Spain to promote um, Caller's Game in a couple of weeks. So that's going to be fun. Um, but, you know, I was honestly worried after, you know, the pandemic that publishers would realize how much money they're saving by throwing everybody on Zoom and, you know, and not send us out on the road anymore. So I'm, I'm honestly kind of looking forward to it. It's, it's good to hear that he's seen crowds when he goes. Yeah, it's just you can't replicate doing things in real life. Like there's some things that you just can't do on zoom. Like they're great for like small little meetings and stuff. And for like what we're doing now. But I mean, there's, there's nothing like you actually gain to sit there and you know, like all, all four of your fans, they're going to show up when you go to Spain, you know, actually getting to meet you. So um, no, obviously I'm joking, well, but yeah. like, seriously, like you actually gain to meet like a line of fans and stuff and actually communicate with them. It's totally, it's, it's just, it's not, you can't replicate that. No, I mean, for me, it helps me recharge the batteries, you know, because you're, yeah. you're sitting behind a desk all by yourself for the longest time, just stuck in your own head. Um, and, you know, to hear other people, you know, meet fans, meet people that are like, you know, are appreciating what you're actually doing and the work that goes into it, you know, that, that helps me write the next book, you know, and we haven't had that for a couple of years. And I know even Joanna uh, Penn has talked about, you know, how she had some, you know, some problems or struggled a little bit writing fiction um, during the pandemic. I think this was part of it, you know, because we, we lost that, that human element of it. And, you know, I think we, we all need that to a certain extent. I was going to make a terrible joke about you going to the metaverse in Spain for your book tour, but instead of that, <laughs> uh, uh, you, this, you never know. And in, in 10 uh, years, that might be exactly how they do uh, it. Yeah. I mean, you'll be sitting in a McDonald's uh, eating your Big Mac and, uh, and holding your book tour, but, um, and he'll, he'll look 15 years younger than he does <laughs> yeah. now. You'll be in your seventies. Yeah. You're going to be looking 28. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> eating a Big Mac. Eating a Big Mac. Or Sign drinking out of a coffee there. machine. <laughs> Okay, we're way down the rabbit hole on the inside jokes now. But I, I, I wanted to add, and, and maybe this is more of a JD than Zach question, but I love that James is uh, like doing his fantasy novels and, 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 and sort of writing those and, and staying, you know, staying with Sigma Force. What, what were your thoughts on that when he was talking about his fantasy book? 
Well, you know, the part that actually jumped out at me was, you know, the 49 rejections. Yeah. Um, because, you know, a lot of authors have been there, you know, and they would have quit at, at 30 or 20, 10. Some, some, they get that one or two and they're like, screw it. Say, I'm out. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to indie publish that title or they just put it aside and they, they walk away altogether. So 49 is huge. And yeah, if you remember back to the interview with, with TJ Newman, I don't remember what number she was on, but it was up there. Um, and then, you know, Shane Salerno, her, her agent, said, you know, I think we can make this work. And, and he did. He scored her a couple seven-figure deals on, on that particular book. So, you know, you never know. You you know, everything might look horrible and bleak on a Monday, and then you get that phone call on a Tuesday, and, and everything changes. Um, but, yeah, I like I like the fact that he put that aside and, you know, was, was conscious enough as a you know business person to say, okay, well, maybe thrillers aren't for me, but I'm going to try this instead. Um, and then, you know, picked up and, and tried a, a fantasy novel. Um, and obviously nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, his, his publisher, I think, at some point would have trouble trying to sell both. But, you know, if he starts off early enough in the career writing in both worlds, you never know. You know, King, King has Dark Tower and he's got his other stuff, too. You know, like it, as long as you condition the audience to appreciate that from the get go, I, I think it's very doable. Yeah. You know, he brought up um, there. You guys were talking about keeping the characters straight. You know, which is something I think a lot of authors don't think about when they sit down and they write that that first book, especially if it's the first book in a series. You know, you have to, you know, really keep track of, you know, a lot of different things, um, you know, whether it's hair color, eye color. Uh, for me personally, I mean, what I do and the only reason I wanted to mention this is so, you know, authors that are, are working on this right now, you know, hopefully think about it and, and come up with something. But I, in Scrivener, they've got character sketches. So when I come up with, you know, some weird trait for a person, I make sure that I drop it into that character sketch because you will not remember. You know, just like you had, you know, chopped off the wrong hand, you know, like you, 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 you literally forget that stuff. I, I know authors that have killed off the same character twice, you know, in, in either the, the same book in one case or, in, you know, within the same series because they totally forgot they had done it before. Um, you know, when you start getting three books in, you know, let alone 16, you know, it's, it's tough to keep all those details straight. Nice. All right. Well, James is always a great interview. I'm glad he came back. I especially enjoy the, the, the second timers coming back because we've kind of gotten through the, the introductory stuff. So uh, super pro, uh, incredible writer, and uh, just, just great to have him on. So uh, what do we got next week, J.D.? Uh, Q&A, I think, right? All right. Yep. We got the Q&A. So if you are a patron, be sure to submit your question when you see that notification pop up and uh, we'll be gathering those for next week all right well if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now we'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing thanks for listening to this episode of writers inc access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com